Hi, I'm Andrew J. Boyle. Welcome to North by Norway. Welcome to a podcast today about what is, without any doubt, the great drama of modern Norwegian history. Norwegians know it as Apriljagene, the days of April. We can call it the hunt for the king. It's a drama in three acts. In today's podcast I will cover Act 1, the events of the 9th of April 1940. And Acts 2 and 3, the 10th and 11th of April, are the subject of next week's podcast. I call it the great drama. How else to describe three days that start with King Håkon of Norway in his bed in the palace in central Oslo and finish with the king and government hunted from town to village to farm. Three days that end with them stumbling through snow as German bomber planes strife and bomb the ground around them. How else describe three days that see a coup d'etat by a politician whose party, at the most recent general election, gained a meagre 1.8% of the popular vote. For our prologue, I've come to the only place I could. I've travelled 45 minutes up the east coast of the Oslo Fjord from my home in Fredrikstad, and I'm standing now on the beach in Dröbaksund, the Dröbak Sound. At this point, the fjord is at its narrowest, only 500 metres across, and therefore here that the cannon batteries defending the approach to Oslo were positioned. I'm looking straight across the fjord to the gun rampart of the Oskarsborg fortress, just across the narrow channel, and the, the rumble in the background is the Copenhagen to Oslo ferry just passing. Around midnight on the 9th of April, reports had been coming in that a group of ships, without light or lantern or ensign, had entered the fog of the Oslo fjord. The flotilla ignored warning shots and sailed on towards Oslo. At 4.21, as the leading ship crossed the point where I'm standing now, two cannons were fired, seriously disabling the flagship, setting it alight. It was then hit by four missiles from a torpedo battery and two hours later turned upside down and sank. This was the heavy cruiser Blücher. On board was the main body of German soldiers charged with occupying Oslo, and their officers had been issued with clear orders regarding one of their main goals. I quote, It is of particular importance that the Norwegian king is not permitted to escape. As an emergency measure, he must be stopped from leaving his palace. In other words, the last thing the Nazis wanted was a figurehead of Norwegian social order remaining at large. 
according to the constitution, his was the highest authority in the land, and as such, a figure around which resistance to invasion could gather. In the first hours and days of Norway's occupation, the military response would be woefully inadequate. But at that crucial moment, when the very first shots were fired and Blücher was sent to the bottom, well, the king and his government were given precious hours to make good their flight from Oslo. Here on the beach in the Dröback Sound, there is a memorial wall naming all the people from this area who died resisting occupation. And in the summer, families come here to picnic. Their children climbing and playing on the huge black anchor of the Blüscher that has been recovered from the depths of the sound. Our drama has its list of characters. Let me give you the six most important. Two royals, two politicians, two enemies. The two royals are King Håkon and Crown Prince Olaf. King Håkon is 67 years old. A tall, gaunt figure, originally Danish. He had been married to Maud, daughter of British monarch Edward VII, but she had died just before the war in 1938. The other royal, Crown Prince Olaf, 36 years old. Two politicians, Johan Nygorsvold, Prime Minister. He formed Norway's second Labour government in 1935. And Halfdan Kote, Foreign Minister. Two enemies, Vidkun Quisling, who he was, well, let me turn to the Oxford English Dictionary. Quisling, noun, a person cooperating with an occupying enemy force, a collaborator, a traitor, and the other enemy, Kurt Breuer, who is the German envoy. And of course, with noises ostage, Adolf Hitler. In 1905, Norwegians had been asked to vote in two referendums. One, did they wish independence from Sweden? 99.95% said yes. Two, did they wish to be a monarchy or a republic? 80% voted for monarchy. No county in Norway voted for a republic. Only 35 years later, the Nazis wished to tread these freedoms into the mud. As international tension increased during the 1930s, Norway, like Sweden, 
hoped that Germany would respect its neutrality. However, a huge amount of the iron ore Germany needed for its armaments was mined in the north of Sweden and shipped out of Narvik in the north of Norway. British naval forces had laid mines in the seas around Narvik to try and prevent iron ore shipments getting out. For Germany, it was imperative that it seized control of the west coast of Norway. At half past four in the morning, German envoy Kurt Breuer arranged to meet Foreign Minister Kurt at his department. He was polite, recalled Kurt, but there was a cold tone of command in his words, and with him he had 19 typed pages, Hitler's ultimatum. In this ultimatum, Germany required that Norway surrender voluntarily and allow German forces into the country. If so, it would retain its political independence. If not, resistance would be crushed by every means. Kurt took the ultimatum to the cabinet, which needed only minutes to reject it, and send the envoy packing. But now every minute counted. A message was sent to the railway authority to have an extra train ready to leave at seven o'clock, and the royal family and members of parliament were alerted. At his house, outside Oslo, Crown Prince Olaf and his wife hurried to get their three children ready for departure. The youngest, Harald, was only three. Today he is Norway's King Harald V. Olaf got the family into his Buick and roared off towards the city. He recalled, I've never driven so fast to the palace as on that fateful morning. I took the wheel myself, for I fully expected to encounter Germans standing in the road to try and stop me, and I was determined to knock down anyone in our path. At the palace, King Hawkon was nearly ready to leave. Here is Olaf again. This wasn't a moment for discussion and debate but my father took time to weigh his options and then acted decisively. That was a quality of his that explains why in many difficult situations he made what would turn out to be the right decision. To take a moment to use one's head is not the same thing as letting time go to waste. Platform 8 at Oslo Station was cordoned off and fearful members of Parliament arrived along with the royal family. By the time the train pulled out of Oslo Station, most of the key ports along the coast of Norway had fallen to the Germans. Above the Oslo Fjord, squadron upon squadron of German planes was flying towards the airport to deploy paratroopers and then try to land. In panic... Fearing bombing raids by the Germans or the British, the population was trying to get out of the city centre by car or cart. For the emergency train, 
The goal was the town of Hamad, 130 kilometers to the north. That's about 80 miles. After just 20 kilometers, their journey came to an abrupt stop at the town of Lillestrøm. Before they were ushered out of the train and down into the relative safety of an underpass, they witnessed the German bombing of the local airfield. Foreign Minister Kurt wrote later. German planes circled the airfield, which was right by the train station, and dropped their bombs. Everything turned to smoke and fire. Back in Oslo, one man surveyed the chaos of the unexpected German invasion and came to the conclusion. That destiny was working in his favor. Vidkun Kvisling was the leader of the tiny fascist party called National Samling, National Unification. The party had never managed to win a single seat in Parliament, and the most recent general election showed that even the small support it had was fading. On the morning of the ninth of April, with the left-wing government fleeing Oslo on a train. And the Nazis, beginning their hunt to bring them and the king back to Oslo, Kvisling's supporters gathered round him in a city centre hotel. There was a power vacuum. Why shouldn't he and his followers fill it? In December, he had been to Berlin to meet Hitler and avowed his support for fascist policies that would remove any vestige of left-wing, especially Marxist, ideas. From political life, purely on his own and his supporters' initiative, he decided he would find the right moment to announce that he was taking over command of the country. He arrived at this conclusion as the German troops from the airport were marching into Oslo, and he did it without contacting the official German envoy Kurt Breuer, far less Hitler. In whose carefully engineered invasion plan he was about to make an incursion that would have unforeseen and unwanted consequences for himself and das Führer. Around 11:15, the train carrying King Horkon, the royal family, the government. And members of parliament arrived in the lakeside town of Hamar. The politicians arranged to convene in the Hamar theatre at one o'clock. Prime Minister Nygorsvall was close to collapse. His staunch and statesmanlike character had buckled. He was reduced to tears. The president of parliament noted that it had made a terrible impression on him. As if something in his life had suddenly collapsed,、uh, he had really believed that there had been a desire for peace in humanity. Now he thought he just couldn't bear it any more, for the foundation on which he stood had been pulled from under him. The train was also met by the county governor, 
who drove the king and royal family away to the safety of Salid, a manor farm about three kilometres from the town. I visited Salid a few years ago, and its isolation from the hubbub of town has been preserved. The palatial, white-painted timber buildings are set above rolling farmland raised on a hill above Lake Mursa, and its rooms were still richly appointed, fit for a king. Hawkon tried to get some rest after his gruelling experiences, but soon Prime Minister Nygorsval was at the door requesting to speak to him alone. To the king's astonishment and dismay, Nygorsval offered his and his cabinet's resignation. This Hawkon needed time to consider. It was quite simply the last thing he needed. After conferring with his son, Crown Prince Olaf, Horkon was eventually driven back down to the town where he met with the parliamentary president and told him, It is not possible for me at this moment in time to form a new government, and without a government, I am unable to carry out my constitutional duties. Our situation is critical and the government will make it even more critical if they insist on resigning. I can, therefore, not accept their resignation. Crown Prince Olaf also addressed the politicians. I can't accept that the government will negotiate with Breuer. No matter how we act, the country will not escape the horrors of war. How can anyone have faith in Hitler's words? He has broken treaties, agreements, promises of every kind. There is at least a chance to save the country and its future if one holds firm. While King Hawkon and Crown Prince Olaf returned to their family at Salid Farm, the members of Parliament met in an extraordinary session in the Harmar Theatre. Many wanted to fight on as long as possible, in the hope that British and French combat forces that had been promised would arrive in time. There was a majority, however, who wanted to spare the country what they saw as needless violence and destruction. They were led by the increasingly nervous Prime Minister Nygorsval, who stated, I must recommend that we negotiate through the German envoy the conditions on which Norwegian sovereignty can be maintained. At about the same time as Nygorsval was speaking, several buses and lorries full of elite German soldiers had stopped at a petrol station in Jesheim, about a third of the way between Oslo and Harmar, close by today's Oslo airport. Their mission was to capture King Håkon and the government, for the German invader, it was a bitter blow that the king had escaped, with him under their control and compliant. A sheen of legitimacy could be given to their political changes. As soon as the German troops moved on, quick-thinking locals got on the phone, and the meeting in the Harmar Theatre was suddenly interrupted by the President of Parliament. In the protocol, it states... The President finds that he must announce that an emergency train to Elverum 
is standing ready and will leave Harmar in five minutes from now. German forces are underway to capture the members of parliament and they have already passed Yesheim. The royal family was alerted, they left the dinner table and made an unceremonious dash for the cars to make their way at breakneck speed down to the main road. They were being hounded from pillar to post. They had no idea what awaited them at their next stop. Elverum to the northeast was at least 35 kilometers closer to the Swedish border. All day, radio programs have been replaced with endless music. Then, suddenly at half past seven, a presenter interrupts the concert. Oslo, Vidkun Kvisling, the Norsk Regjerings nye chef, gir nå en erklæring til det norske folk. Vidkun Kvisling, the new leader of the national government, will now issue a proclamation to the people of Norway. Proklamation til det norske folk. Quisling informs listeners that Nygårdsvold, in a response to the offer of help from the Germans, has mobilized the defense forces and given them the unreasonable order to resist the friendly German forces. Under these circumstances, he regards it as the duty of him and his national unification movement to assume power and thereby save the country from the desperate situation into which its politicians had thrust it. He then says, The Nygårdsvall government has resigned. The national government has assumed governmental power with Vidkun Kvisling as prime minister and foreign minister. To quote commentator Odvar Heydal, Quisling's actions constituted a revolutionary coup d'etat intended to aid the invading power. The legally elected government still functioned. It was treason. For the people of Norway, it seems certain that Quisling, this extreme right-wing politician who had been rejected at all elections, had been put in place by the German invaders. In fact, for German envoy Kurt Breuer, Quisling's coup d'etat was an immense shock, and he endeavoured to get in touch with Berlin to find out what had happened and what his next step should be. At 9.40 in the evening, Parliament resumed its work, now in the school gym in the small town of Elverum. The start had been delayed by the late arrival of the Prime Minister. Nygårdsvall had missed the train from Harmar and had to persuade a local shopkeeper to drive him. As for the Foreign Minister, Halfdan Kult, 
He was nowhere to be seen. He, too, had come too late for the emergency train. Colt, who was Norway's liaison with the Germans, was now sitting on the nine o'clock local train from Hamar, stopping at every small station along the way. This would be the last time Parliament met for more than five years. The members of Parliament issued an extraordinary document, famous in Norway, called the Elverum Authorization, which authorised the Cabinet to act on behalf of Parliament until they next convened. And from its exile in London, the Elverum document made it possible for the banished government to function on behalf of all Norwegians. The government was willing to meet the German envoy, but now, after Quisling's coup d'etat, there could be no question of the elected government resigning in his favour. News reached the politicians in Elverum that the German troops were again hot on their heels. The royal family and parliament were quickly on the move again in an ever more desperate situation. This time their goal was the tiny village of Nybergsund, only an hour away from the Swedish border. They drove, as quickly as was possible on icy roads, between high ploughed banks of snow, and finally arrived at one o'clock in the morning. It was a small settlement of buildings deep in the evergreen woodlands of Trysil, where time had stood still. It was the back of beyond. And King Håkon was quartered in a simple boarding house. Here, in the dead of night, King Håkon took farewell with his grandchildren, Olaf with his wife and children. They were to drive on to Sweden and seek asylum. In Oslo, envoy Kurt Breuer had finally got through to Adolf Hitler in Berlin. He tried to explain to Hitler what a disaster it was that Quisling had assumed power, for he was deeply unpopular. Hitler, however, disagreed. He could be a useful puppet for them. He ordered Breuer to meet with King Håkon alone, and to suggest that there might be room for negotiation on some things, but not on Vidkun Quisling. He will lead the new government. Hitler would take many astonishing missteps in the next years, fateful for his cause and his people. This was his first big mistake. If Hitler had not insisted on Quisling's position as leader, the Norwegian government would probably have negotiated a settlement, perhaps an accommodation similar to that of the Danish government. However, the unpalatable Quisling meant that King and Parliament would eventually leave for exile in England. During their journey from Harmar to Elverum, the royal family and politicians had passed an isolated farm at Mitskogen. Here, young Norwegian soldiers were erecting a barricade of timber and trucks to try and stop the oncoming Germans. Their commander had addressed them earlier in the evening. The future of Norway for all time 
may depend on how well you, gentlemen, succeed tonight with your mission to stop the enemy achieving his goal. Good luck. After helping his hostess to hang up blackout curtains, King Hawkon tried to get an hour or two of sleep. Back along the road he had travelled, young Norwegians at the Midskogen barricade were repelling the attack of German paratroopers. Next time, King Hawkon stands firm. The Germans try to assassinate him and his government. But for now, Tusen Takvara to Hörtepo. Thanks for listening.